Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, a Monday edition with Charlie Cook back from the NRA convention. This particular episode is being very generously sponsored by our friends at Remington who have been bringing you Mad Dogs and Englishmen reports all week from the uh, NRA convention. It is a cold early spring day here at Buckley Towers with people walking around almost May still wearing parkas outside and as noted earlier Charlie is back from the NRA convention where he was hanging out with Garrity and various politicians and other people. So, Charles, tell me more about what you saw. Well, this year was was notably different than last year, and I, and I wrote this up last night in that I think in some regards the general success of the NRA is its next challenge. And what I mean by that is that last year's convention was held immediately after the flurry of activity that followed the shooting at Newtown. And so many northeastern states, including the state in which we're now sitting and also the state in which I live, and indeed Colorado and other unlikely states, Maryland I think too, had just passed regulatory changes, uh, or as I would call them, deeply authoritarian and stupid laws that do nothing. And the federal government had just failed, once again, to pass anything, not just uh, anything substantial, but anything at all. The president had come out and said he wanted a ban on the size of magazines, that he wanted um, a, uh, sorry, a, a ban on a, a so-called assault weapons, a limit on the size of magazines, um, and universal background checks, in other words, uh, regulating private sales between private individuals. And he got none of those things. So when the speakers and the board of the NRA stood up and said, we are really fighting for our rights and fighting for our liberties as Americans, it really meant something. And it had just been demonstrated how effective the NRA was and how urgent the challenge was. Now, this isn't to say that it's not important still. Of course it is. You certainly don't get complacent. But this year is naturally very different. The... uh, Colorado uh, legislators who passed those bills have been under fire. The Democratic Party is unpopular in Colorado in large part because of the way in which they went about passing those laws. And three of those legislators have either been recalled um, or resigned uh, in heavily Democratic districts in some cases. Michael Bloomberg is currently one two of the 67 uh, campaigns that he got himself and his uh, influence and his money uh, involved in. And there really has been no other grand attempt to touch the gun control issue since that time. And so when the sort of by rote lip service, this is the worst time for gun rights in American history comes out, you sit there if you know a little bit about it and think, well, not really. And it was telling this time that Uh, the speakers tended to focus on other things. Uh, They broadened the the question. So Rick Santorum, for example, talked very briefly about his wife, and she owns more guns than him. And then he talked about religious freedom and the First Amendment and the IRS. Mitch McConnell said the Bill of Rights is not an a la carte thing. And then he talked about the First Amendment and campaign finance in the IRS. Uh, Marco Rubio made his pitch much more, as he often does, about American exceptionalism and about individualism and the lack of the need for the government. And so 
instead of focusing in on guns at a gun conference, it was almost one guy joked to me, CPAC with a gun show. Yeah. And, and the reason I bring this up is, uh, and I'm supportive of the NRA and what it does, but is that I think this raises a question and a challenge for it, which is, when it is successful, is it going to try to play a sort of gun-focused role in the wider liberty movement, or is it going to stick to what it has always done very well, which has been focusing in solely on one issue, bringing people of different parties and political views together, and why is it successful? It's successful because it's popular, because it is focused on one thing, because it has a constitutional amendment that it's defending, because it has a a bipartisan tradition that it is defending. And it just struck me that if it becomes too generally conservative or libertarian in its output, it might start to lose focus. Yeah, I think any movement like theirs, uh, it needs to have an enemy. You know, you need to have someone you're running against, someone you're campaigning against. And when you're at the point where your most prominent national rival is Michael Bloomberg and his pathetic, sad little group of, what do they have, three protesters out there or something like that? Oh, they were extremely proud this time because they claimed 300, but it was more like 100. Mm. Well, okay, that's a mystery. But they were a mile away. They didn't come anywhere near the convention center. Well, now, was that because the organizers kept them away, or is there something else that uh, they just decided to do it at the Starbucks down the street? I, I asked for clarification, and I was given uh, three paragraphs of nonsense. And what was in those three paragraphs of nonsense? Oh, we're, I can find them if you you filibuster for a second. <laughs> well, okay, well, let me switch topics for a second, just because um, on your earlier question, I'm very strongly of the opinion, uh, as a member of the NRA and a longtime member of the NRA, that it should remain uh, exclusively a gun rights focused organization. Right. You don't want it to be, you know, Americans for Tax Reform uh, with a gun component. You don't want it to be a branch of the Republican National Committee. You don't want it to be anything like that. And the reason they've been so successful, I think, is precisely what, you, what you, you've hit upon here, which is that they concentrate solely on this particular issue that they're very good at. And it is an issue that a lot of people forget is a bipartisan issue. There are Democrats in this country who believe very strongly in Second Amendment rights. There are Democrats who are very, very skeptical uh, of attempts to regulate, particularly at the federal level, uh, cosmetic features of rifles and, and those sorts of things. So, you know, there are enough there are enough conservative activist groups out there. There are yeah. enough libertarian activist groups out there doing general politics, doing coalition building and all that. And the NRA has, um, you know, it is probably the most successful truly grassroots uh, movement in the country and has been for, for a long time. And I, I think it's just, uh, it's key that they stay focused on, on their issue. Well, and they have given Harry Reid, uh, I think, an A rating because Harry Reid is generally good on firearms. And I heard two criticisms of this when I put my piece up last night. And one of them, I think, has some merit. The other one absolutely doesn't. Now, the one that doesn't is... Well, by endorsing the incumbent every time and by endorsing candidates based solely on their attitude toward firearms, we sometimes end up with people who are not good for the wider liberty movement. And my response to that is, yes, that's absolutely true. If a Republican who in every other way is is a moderate um, has a, a, a 
a great record on guns, the NRA will endorse the incumbent. That's their that's their policy, and is that good always for people who are generally more conservative or libertarian? No, but the answer to that is that's really not the NRA's role. Right. I mean, the NRA is not there to police Congress for people who are good on speech and people who are good on taxes and people who are good on uh, foreign policy. They're there to make sure that Congress is full of people who are good on the Second Amendment. Yeah, and beyond even that, it's, you know, strategically speaking, more important for the NRA to produce some kind of reformed Democratic Party than it is to re- put pressure on the Republicans. The Republicans are sort of corporately already where they're supposed to be. You know, we used to say that the uh, the greatest achievement of the Reagan administration was the Democratic Party so chastened that they made Bill Clinton their standard bearer. People said the same thing about, you know, Thatcher was reforming labor so much they had to put up a guy like Tony Blair instead of one of their, you know, traditional uh, reds. And I think that, um, you know, the NRA's success can really be measured not so much in Republicans' consistency on this issue, but in the fact that there is a remaining and relatively robust strain within the Democratic Party that either is positively in favor of the Second Amendment or at least uh, willing to stay away from the issue because they uh, know that it's a political loser. And because I think they've also come to be convinced that it's uh, that gun control is not the way to address crime and violence. Uh, it just simply isn't. The empirical evidence is, is very strongly against that proposition. And we have, you know, 20, 30 years now of pretty good historical evidence of comparing various kinds of aggressive versus non-aggressive gun control regimes and seeing what effect they have on, on crime and violence, and we find that they're not very much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the second criticism of, of the NRA as being more focused is that what will happen, you know, the Harry Reeds of the world will get their endorsement, and then they will go back to Congress and hang out with and encourage people who are not pro-Second Amendment. And I understand that. I understand the backroom deals. I understand that Harry Reid is, is, is not a winsome fellow. But I would also say to this... To say the least. Right, but I would also say that Harry Reid is largely to credit for killing the idea at the outset of both a new so-called assault weapons ban and of limits on magazine size. Hmm. Now, no, it wouldn't have got through the Senate, and it certainly wouldn't have got through the House. But the fact is, Dianne Feinstein went on her little crusade and photographed herself in front of so-called assault weapons and wrote a whole bill, on which was far, far more comprehensive than the ban that obtained between 94 and 2004. And Harry Reid effectively just said, no. Nope, not happening. You know, in the way that frustrates Republicans when Harry Reid just does it, he did that to a member of his own party. So I, I have some sympathy for the NRA on this and, and their, their methods. I would just say they ought to be careful because, yes, conventions are self-selecting. The sort of people who go to conventions tend to be very, very interested in the subject. Yes, the overlap between the wider liberty movement and the Second Amendment is going to be such that the majority of people you meet at an NRA convention, as opposed to the membership, which is much more mixed, as opposed to gun owners in general, which is much more mixed, is going to lean to the right. But you don't want a situation in which Democrats who disagree with 
Republicans and Conservatives on pretty much everything except for the gun issue feel as if they can't join what is one of, if not the most effective advocacy groups in the country because every year it just becomes CPAC and because it becomes allied only with conservative Republicans who talk about taxes and abortion and Barack Obama and free speech and campaign finance because that's the mistake the left makes I think when they talk about guns which is to presume that this is some sort of narrow Republican, conservative, white hobby horse, when it really is... I mean, Whoopi Goldberg is a member of the National Rifle Association, and so... Well, it's a bit like the uh, normal, the National Association for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, which, uh, you know, a lot of conservatives like us are happy to uh, do things with, to ally with, and to support, and if it became this sort of, you know, lefty-lefty, you know, Birkenstocks, Birkenstocks progressive organization, uh, you'd probably feel a little less comfortable uh, cooperating with them. And there's certainly that element in normal. You know, it, there's a little more patchouli smell around the average normal convention than there probably is at the NRA. A few more dreadlocks, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, Well, actually, it's funny you should mention them because the recall of John Morse in Colorado mm-hmm. was two-thirds the product of his vote and his leadership on the magazine size limit. And one third the product of the way in which he ran the Senate, and especially with that bill. Yeah. And so you had people who weren't necessarily offended by limits on magazine size to, to 15 rounds voting yes to recall him because they were fed up with his general behavior. And one of the most interesting tidbits I saw when I was out there was that he had taken really a few days before the vote to the floor of the Senate and tried to introduce a measure that would effectively have undone Colorado's marijuana legalizing proposition Hmm. by, um, I think what what basically the measure was that until such time as uh, as the means by which marijuana would be taxed had been determined, marijuana would be illegal. I see. And... The marijuana guys, who are are not necessarily gun guys, in fact, many cases are not, freaked. And they came out to vote to recall the guy. Hmm. Now, you know... Of course, think about... That shows you how a narrow focus group, you know, defies all of the normal cleavages. Normal, so to speak. And the thing about... um, (laughs) Well, the thing about marijuana enthusiasts is that they are a lot like gun enthusiasts in the sense that they're real enthusiastic. You know, people who care about uh, marijuana reform, care about legalization, they care about it a lot. I mean, sometimes more than seems sensible to me. Um, You know, I'm all the way with them on the issue. I would prefer to see all of the uh, criminal and, uh, and other rules about marijuana repealed. But there are people who this is their day. You know, this is they really, really care about it. And I was doing a, I was doing a radio show the other day, in fact, and uh, we were talking uh, about some gun issues. And I, I noted that that's the thing that you know gun users and pot smokers have in common is that we can talk about this stuff all day. You know, it's it's just of endless interest for whatever reason. And I, I tend to be a little more sympathetic to that in the case of guns than in the case of marijuana, about which I don't have a whole lot to say other than. Yeah, it was fun in college, and I think it ought to be legal, and, and beyond that, there's, there's not much to say on it. I wanted to ask you, though, um, did you talk to these uh, these Bloomberg folks and the other protesters about the uh, the assault weapons thing specifically, which still seems to be making the rounds? 
Well, this is this is interesting because last night um, I was uh, tweeted at by a mum who is demanding action. Now, I think mums demand action and mayors against illegal guns have been folded into this parent group called Every Town, some Every Town for Gun Sense or Gun Safety or gun whatever, safety, yeah. whatever euphemism they've picked up on this week. And it was interesting because the 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 Every Town people seemed quite keen to talk to me during the convention and would answer my questions readily. You know, why aren't you protesting near the convention center? We'll come back to that. Uh, what what are, what is your plan? You know, uh, you know, and they were sending me their their information routinely until I asked what their position was on a so-called assault weapons ban and on a magazine limit. Now, I asked, I was talking to a, a lady from Mum's Demand Action last night about background checks, maybe four, five, six tweets. And the second I asked this question, she had time to tell me why she had to go away and what she had to do with her kids, <laughs> but not to answer the question yes or no. Are you in favour of a so-called assault weapons ban? and uh, a ban on, on so-called high-capacity magazines. The same thing with Shannon Watts, who blocked me when, on Twitter when I asked the question. And the same thing with the press flack for Everytown, who has just stopped replying to my emails now that I've asked this question. And I think this is interesting. And I would say I'm a fair-minded guy. If anyone is listening from Everytown and this is literally just a coincidence, please email me and I will set the record straight both on the corner and on this podcast. But here's what I think you're doing. I think you've realized that these two things are not only unpopular, but that they inspire so much passion and discord that you have sat around and decided to stay vague. We want common sense gun safety reforms. And you've decided to talk about gun locks and training and universal background checks and stay away but that the second there were a bill, either at the local or at the federal level, to do with assault weapons or to do with magazine size, you would back it. I would like to see some evidence to the contrary, because it should be a simple question, don't you think? They are a political outfit. This is not trying to construct an argument from the absence of evidence. This is a public outfit that is involved in reforming the gun laws. Don't we have a right to know what they would like to do? Yeah, they've actually been... um I think there, there's some organizational discipline going on here. And, uh, you know, there are four big things here. There, there are a couple of big things that they really uh, are arguing for over at every town are in part things that a lot of people on our side support. They just want different versions of them that would be more extensive. So, for instance, we're not against background checks. Uh, you know, most people uh, support background checks as a, as a normal precautionary measure, but they want to force people in private sales to have background checks as much as wouldn't support. Uh, gun trafficking is one of their Well, their we already have things. background checks. It's a law. Right, yeah. Uh, gun trafficking is one of their big things. And, of course, we have lots of laws about gun trafficking, and they're very rarely enforced. In fact, you know, one of my longstanding criticisms of places like Chicago, which has, you know, a real problem with violent crime, is that they take a lot of guns off the streets when they arrest people who have them illegally, but they charge and prosecute very, very few people mm. under those laws. Uh, it's one of the things that um, I've always conceded that New York does pretty well, in New York City specifically, which is that um, New York really will prosecute you for having uh, an illegal gun. And you will do every year, every day the two-year uh, minimum sentence that you get under the, uh, under the Sullivan Act for that. So uh, 
in a sense, they're they're building their their platform around a model that says, well, we can reach out to some people on the other side who are not, you know, extremists and ideologues. And on the surface, that's that's just about true. I mean, because mm-hmm. you know, who's against having, you know, making gun safety training courses more available, or having people not be jackasses and, and leave their ARs out where their eleven year old kids can play with them. Um, and, you know, keeping guns out of the hands of criminals and such things. But the, the, the problem, of course, is that we've already got all sorts of good laws on, on most of that stuff yeah. uh, that are that are not enforced, at least in, in a lot of the country, the way they should be. And what they're really looking for, of course, is just new things to make gun ownership more onerous for legal owners that are not going to have any real effect on this stuff. Yeah, and it's fascinating the way in which the gun control movement talks about gun control proposals. Now, we all make our case as strongly as we can in the best words that we can find. But one guy, when I was tweeting about the NRA convention, tweeted at me that he said, the NRA is in favor of terrorists being able to buy a Bushmaster at a gun show. Now, what he meant by this was that People, the NRA is against people who are on the no-fly list being prohibited from selling private firearms to one another. Bushmaster was thrown in because it sounds scary. Right. Now, he's right at the root of it. that The NRA's position is that the no-fly list is such a mess, has so many people on it, and is so difficult to get yourself off that introducing it into the federal background check system would be a disaster. I have no issue in principle with a working terrorist list being included within the background check system. But Jim Garrity was telling me that there are almost a million people on the no-fly list. He said that Senator Ted Kennedy was on it at one point. And I know from having written about this in the past that if you get yourself onto the no-fly list, and we hear occasional stories of a nine-year-old girl who's been put on it, for example, or somebody who turns up to the airport who flies every week who's suddenly told that he can't fly, there's very little you can do about it. There's very little for redress of grievances. And... The NRA's position on this and the Republican position on this is let's not include it. But, you know, to them, that the NRA is on the side of a terrorist. And similarly... Well, that's, the, just, that's just regular intellectual dishonesty. Right. And, and similarly, for example, with this gun show loophole. You know, there is no such thing as a gun show loophole. Absolutely not. What they, they, they say that because it makes it look as if anyone can just go to a gun show and buy without a background check. Well, anyone can go to a gun show and buy without a background check if they're engaging in the sort of private sale that is already illegal in that state. So, yeah, in the parking lot of a gun show, they could buy from a friend. Yeah, in the parking lot of a Denny's, they can buy from a friend, or in their living room, or in a public park, or wherever they do their transaction. But a federally licensed firearms dealer doesn't lose their restrictions just because they're at a gun show. They still are in place. So if you're a guy who sells guns for a living and you're at a, at a gun show, you have the same rules that would obtain in your shop. And but the flip side of that also it. is that if you're the sort of person who is not allowed to legally purchase a gun, it's still a crime for you to buy it. Yes, you and know, it's a, a crime actually for the guy who sells it to you to sell it to you if he knows you're not allowed. Right, of course. And yeah. he's supposed to look in... I mean, when you look at the actual court cases... Obviously, you don't want to be prosecuting people who had no idea. But there is some burden on the person who's selling it to literally have no idea. You know, you have to have reasonable um, a reasonable assurance that the person is mm. not a criminal. And, of course, a lot of gun shows uh, impose background checks themselves as a voluntary matter. They'll have, you know, a couple of FFLs out there, and they'll run the checks through, which is, you know, one way to do it. I don't think that's necessarily a bad way. 
I dislike the idea that everyone who owns a gun and might want to sell it to his you know brother-in-law has to be treated as though he were a person engaged right. commercially in the business of being a firearms dealer. You know, so if I wanted to you know, sell you uh, one of the guns that I'm not allowed to keep here in New York City and, and that live in storage elsewhere, you know, that we would have to act as though I were a, uh, a registered and licensed federal firearms dealer. Uh, we don't do that with anything else. You know, if I want to sell you a used car, I don't have to go get myself registered as a car dealer. Um, I think you can even sell people, you know, real estate and things like that without getting um, without getting yourself licensed to, uh, to do that. And even if you can't, the, my objection... Uh, to the amount of credentialization and licensing would would stand in that you know even even if for example you know someone writes to us and they say well actually you can't sell someone a car or a piece of real estate in you know Wyoming without a, well you should be able to yeah, for God's sake <laughs> you know it's not the, the answer to this is not to bring the firearms laws necessarily in line with the licensing laws it's to make the licensing laws less strict right and of course they are ridiculous in some places so I wrote about a case uh, a couple of years ago in which there were some college students in a I want to say it was California who had formed a, a moving company, you know, because they had, they were all, you know, I guess sort of burly guys and uh, they were okay with moving furniture. And apparently in California, operating a moving company is this something you have to be licensed for. And um, now someone will correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say it was California though. But the other interesting aspect of this particular law was there were only X number of licenses available. And the group that got to decide whether they should add to that pool was the trade association of people who own moving companies. So basically they had to approve any new competition to enter their, enter their market. Yeah, it's, a, it's not a guild, it's a cartel. It's a cartel. Yeah, it's terrible. No, so where I was driving with that was that so much of the emotive stuff that you hear is based upon not even a half-truth, but a sort of an eighth of a truth, a kernel of truth that is that has been blown wildly out of proportion. And uh, and this weekend was was sort of nice when I was interviewing people about guns to know what they were talking about. Right. <laughs> you know, your average guy there does know the laws in and out because he doesn't want to fall foul of them because he's not a criminal. Yeah. Were you ever able to find, by the way, that uh, app we were talking about that tells you whether you're legal with your... No, I have it. Card? I have it. And yeah. you press the, the GPS button at the top and it, then it lists all of the laws underneath. And it's not just, are you legal? Oh. You, you put in the permits you have to start with. Yeah. And then it lists the, the laws uh, in that state, tells you whether you're legal. Um, and I'm talking about laws such as, can I go into a place where they serve alcohol with a firearm? You can't drink, of course. But can I just go in there? Uh, are state parks uh, covered? You know, how old does one have to be? What how does my car factor into this? Um, you know, so, so yeah, the, and, and there are quite a few of these apps that have popped up of late because people don't want to find themselves on the wrong side of the law, I suppose. It's a felony, right, in some places. Oh, I suppose. Uh, illegal possession of a firearm's got to be felony almost everywhere. I mean, I guess there are places where you get charged as a misdemeanor, but uh, it's certainly a potential felony in, in, in lots and lots of places. So, takeaway then. NRA, stay focused on what they do well. Absolutely. Bloomberg, go away. What or else? answer at least Bloomberg, answer our questions. Because I just want to finish on this. There was a document that was circulated recently um, by one of, or it was leaked and it was circulated. It had been leaked from one of the big gun, anti-gun groups. And it was essentially guidelines for how to talk about the issue. Hmm. And the general gist of it was don't. 
the general gist of it was keep on emotional subjects. I'm not I'm not unfairly paraphrasing this. It was keep on emotional subjects. Don't get too specific. Mm-hmm. Don't embarrass yourself by trying to talk about anything technical. Just keep on background checks. Use words like safety and sense and common sense and majority and never ever give them the ammunition, no pun intended, that they need in order to to paint you as being extremist or out of touch or or, or a gun grabber. Yeah. Because you are a gun grabber. I, I don't like the way that this is hedged. Well, nobody's talking about confiscation. Well, maybe the recent laws have not talked about confiscation. It is worth remembering that in Massachusetts in the mid-1970s, one Michael Dukakis literally put onto the ballot a hand, full handgun ban and yeah. didn't quite disavow it when he ran for president. But if you stop me from buying something, you are taking it away from the market at least. Well, the other thing about that is that if they're really serious about using gun control to get certain kinds of results in terms of violence and crime, then you really have to talk about confiscation because that's really the only way to get there. You know, if you're going to use gun control to produce, you know, real results, and it's possible you could if you took draconian enough measures, but we're talking about, you know, house-to-house search and seizure, basically, which is is not what anyone's anyone's going to do. And, uh, you know, that whole thing, though, just reminds me of something, which is I, I hate, in the political context, the words common sense. Uh, almost nothing in politics is that obvious, and uh, you know, and partisans on both sides do this. People oh, yeah, in our movement sure. certainly do this. That we assume that there's no good, plausible reason for people to hold opinions that aren't ours, and I think that's it's intellectually lazy, and it's something that uh, well, it's especially insidious when you're dealing with individual rights. Yeah, because the common sense in the room is is irrelevant. I mean, that's the reason that we have individual rights. Now, that's not to say that it's illegal, for example, to run universal background checks are unconstitutional. But appealing to a uh, the common sense in the room, the common sense of the majority when addressing what is inevitably going to be a sensitive issue when it relates to an individual right is really silly. Yeah, I mean, common sense is another word of saying in some context just majority opinion. Yeah. And of course, the reason why you have you know chartered protections of rights is to protect people from majority opinion, which is often wrong. But I'm um, just, you know, the entire idea of, of common sense that, you know, such solutions are self-evident. People look at things like the tax code or people look at things like the federal budget and say, well, common sense says, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And it's, it's almost never uh, that simple. And I think, though, that in the case of, uh, of this particular issue, and maybe that's been the NRA's real uh, victory over the years, is pushing what people assume is common sense in a different direction from where it was, say, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Because I remember when I was, when I was in you know, high school in the 80s, uh, you know, college in the early 90s, um, there was you know, some, some serious concern, and it seemed fairly likely that our, our gun rights would be severely restricted. Well, they you know, were 10 being. or 20 years. Yeah, they were for a time, uh, 10 or 20 years hence. But um, ultimately, that movement has not proved successful, and I think that Michael Bloomberg's attempts to dress it up as common sense uh, this year and next are probably not going to do much either. Well, we should finish up this episode of Mad Dogs and Englishmen, kindly sponsored by Remington, by compiling a list of all of the legislators who are going to lose their seats because of their vote on last year's Jimmy Manchin bill.